electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on Squawk Pod. The promise of AI from a tech veteran. Steve Ballmer, the Microsoft CEO who followed founder Bill Gates on this new moment. Do people really understand? And I think the tech CEOs will admit this. Where will all of this go? No justice! No justice! No justice! The historic United Auto Workers strike. Our Phil LeBeau is on the ground. Record profits in North America. That's why the UAW feels that it has leverage right now. All that today, plus a possible deal to fund the government through October 31st. Scary, isn't it? Halloween. Strike politics, Instacart's launch, and news programs interviewing the former president. Isn't both of them okay? No. Actually, no. It's Monday, September 18th, 2023. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand Becky by in three, two, one. Cue it, please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. It is Monday. It's raining in New York City. You've got the U.N. here. There's no chance anybody's getting anywhere if you're trying to get through traffic this week. Yeah, that's what Mondays will do to you. And we will see what the rest of the week brings. Talking about what the rest of the week brings, here it is, the Squawk Up Planner for the week. The Fed is the big story. The FOMC kicking off a two-day meeting. It starts tomorrow, followed by a news conference, which will happen by Jay Powell on Wednesday. The central bank expected to hold rates steady, but plenty to focus on the guidance, both economic and projections and forecasts for the rate rates at the end of this year. Instacart planning to go public this week. On Friday, it raised its IPO price range to $28 to $30 per share. That aims for a valuation of up to $10 billion. It plans to offer 22 million total shares. Could raise up to $660 million. PepsiCo has agreed to purchase $175 million in a concurrent private placement, uh, which provides a bit of a floor uh, on that IPO. Of course, that was a company that had a valuation of something on the order of close to $40 billion at one point. And given the post-pandemic world that we're now living in, uh, both in the University of Tech and just how people are using these things. Uh, but Instacart, interesting business because we all think of it as something that's a delivery business. Mm-hmm. That's really not actually where uh, so much of the income now comes from. I it's think 30% become, of the revenue it's is become an, from It's become an advertising business, but also an enterprise uh, level business. They have become, if you will, the open table sort of back-end enterprise software for supermarkets and other kinds of uh, grocery stores and others around the country. So it's an interesting business to, to we'll talk a lot about $39 billion dollar valuation was 2021, right yep. about the time you saw Airbnb and DoorDash going public. Um, obviously fell drastically since that time. If you look at those other stocks, they've fallen since yep. then too. Um, but they have slightly inched up the valuation, I guess, right. by about 8 or 9% just over the course of the last week or two. Now, an update on the looming government shutdown, which could happen at the end of the month. House Republicans released a bill uh, after two factions, the Freedom Caucus and the Main Street Caucus, reached the deal. The bill would keep the government 
uh, funded through October 31st. Ooh. Uh, that's uh, scary, isn't it? Halloween. And includes tie, uh, cuts to domestic spending. Those uh, spending cuts, as well as immigration provisions, would likely make their bill a non-starter in the Senate, which is led by the Democrats. The compromise, though, uh, the deal could help Speaker Kevin McCarthy pass a defense spending bill this week that's been tied off in a standoff between Republican leadership and the party's um, right wing. And uh, the F-words were coming fast and furious, supposedly, from... Um, F-bombs? F-bombs from Gates and um, Speaker McCarthy and, really? and behind the scenes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well. And I don't think they were like F-R-I-G-G-I-N. I think they were the full-on wow. high test. Meantime, let's talk about what happened on Meet the Press yesterday. Uh, the company, uh, new host, uh, Kristen Welker, uh, sat down with former President Trump in a wide-ranging interview. And here's what he said about a potential government shutdown. Do you think Republican hardliners should abandon their threat to shut down the government over their spending priorities now that there is this impeachment? No, I think if they don't get a fair deal, we have to save our country. We have $35 trillion in debt. We have to save our country. So you would you know, shut down the government? You'd support that? I'd shut down the government if they can't make an appropriate deal, absolutely. It's a pretty good interview. There was a lot of sort of different pieces to it also. It trending, 50,000, we talked about it earlier, 50,000 trends. She apparently referred to him as Mr. President, and that made a lot of people very angry. I saw some other things that just said, so, you know, meet the press, trying to get ratings, saw fit to interview a, a traitorous insurrectionist rapist. So even to put the guy who's leading, and I don't know whether it's good or bad that he's leading the GOP primary, but he is leading the GOP. He's got like 60%. Of the so it's newsworthy to put him on. It almost reminds me of Anderson Cooper who said, I can understand if, if people never watch CNN ever again after we had Donald Trump on. So that's the, but how does Kristen walk the fine line between and there's people that are mad at her for, for yeah, not conceding about something about abortion. The, to, compare, com, to compare that to the situation that you, happened on CNN is totally different. It's a different situation. But why? You thought he was coddled on CNN or something? Or? No. Be, no. Because it was a live format. So wasn't that good? Isn't both of them okay? In, no. In a, actually, no. What's not okay about I think the, it's the CNN? I think, it, I think it's very hard. To fact check him. I think it's very hard, given who he is and what he says, to air him 100% live all the time. And by the way, I think that's the policy of NBC News. How I think about, I can say that actually do you think straight it's up and down. How about, Am I correct? You think I'm, it's I'm, okay I'm, to interview I'm, I'm President Biden? You think he, everything he's saying is, should that be fact-checked, maybe? I think there's a dis difference. If, look, it's, 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 it's empirically raining outside right this second. Oh, oh okay? you've always come up I've with said this, this so to you before. Thing, the things that if, Trump when, say are, are not factual, but the things that Biden say are just... Can I go back to what the, he said just on but, this but comment? I think Stretching that the truth a little? I think uh, that if you're going to sit here and criticize how journalists are approaching this, we have to have a larger I'm conversation. I'm not criticizing how Kristen Welker's. I'm criticizing that Anderson Cooper said, I can see why you'd never watch CNN again just for having a guy on in a But I don't hall. think it's about having somebody on or not having somebody on. I think it's about the there format and how you do want, it. There are people that don't want... 
Trump on at all. I know. There are people who think that, that, Walker did a that, that by did. default did a good job, and that that's there's some kind of platforming issue. Can I also say, though, what Trump just said, what former President Trump just said about saying he would say... He would shut down the government. He wouldn't do it if he were the president. There are a lot of people... But he wouldn't do it if... you 30 guys that want to shut down the government. But when he was president, he wouldn't have last week said he wanted to shut down the government. And he's not... A total yeah. whack job. I mean, he's Kevin a McCarthy himself was saying he doesn't want to shut down the government. That this would be a big problem if you have issues about trying to fix security at the border. You're not going to do it if you're not paying border security uh, guards who are there. You, same thing if you're if you have issues about the safety of the company country and you're not paying the Defense Department and their bills. He has big issues about that. So I, I think people who look at this seriously don't want to shut down the government. You may want to negotiate for a tough deal, but ultimately shutting down the government does not get you That's, to the point there, you there want are to be. Differences. There are people. There's a, there's a whole contingent that think that that's an effective way to try to, yeah. to cut. Kevin I mean, McCarthy doesn't, though. That's he doesn't. Yeah. I hope he. He's, he's, to he's keep trying his job, to. But, yeah. yeah. I think most rational actors don't want to shut down the government. I would say that's probably true. It's not a good idea. But then most most rational actors don't want to get to 180 percent of GDP yeah. of debt to GDP yeah. by 2030. I think you got to weigh how this all works. I'm not saying you want to get there either. Trust me. Talks between the Writers Guild and Hollywood. Uh, the studios are set to resume this week. The two sides haven't even been at the negotiating table since August 18th. What's today? September 18th. Yep. Full month. Yep. Meantime, Drew Barrymore is backtracking. Uh, she announced yesterday that her talk show would not return following blowback from her decision to resume production without writers. And she said she's pausing the show's uh, premiere until the strike is over. And after Barrymore's announcement, several other talk shows, including The Talk uh, and uh, The Jennifer Hudson Show. Wow, it's a Jennifer Hudson Show. Uh, said they would uh, also postpone their premieres. I thought of Drew last week when I saw those aliens down in Mexico. They looked just like- It's like E.T.? They, the plaster of Paris Mexican aliens they were, they, their, their heads were a little smaller, and their bodies weren't quite as big. They were E.T. They, they looked like the, whatever Steven Spielberg put together when they're doing a show board or whatever it is, they stole those, sent them down there, and said oh, these are real. Mom. That's what I thought about. Very much, she saw them and said, oh, my God, I, those are real. <laughs> Coming up, uh, yeah, she got in trouble for trying to start up again, right? What is, Ma, is Bill Maher? Bill is. He's on. He says he's doing it. I don't think. He, did he start this last week or is starting in a week? I think he's an enigma. He's a. You know what he is? He's an iconoclast. Good word. Cheese will be next. Next on Squawk Pod, Steve Ballmer, the former Microsoft CEO, is crunching the numbers. All of them. The founder of USA Facts takes every bit of government spending data out there to understand the business of the United States. Our population only grew about 1.3 million people last year, and one million of that came from immigration. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. Ready to be a part of it? Let's go, give it to you. Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Give up. Order now at Acura.com. What's on the horizon for financial markets? 
At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. Last week, we watched from outside as a meeting of the Washington and Silicon Valley mines took place in D.C. Control room Zuckerberg now. Mark, what do you tell senators? Got a minute for CNBC Live now, sir? Major tech leaders, including Alphabet's Sundar Pichai, Mark Zuckerberg, Elon Musk, Bill Gates, all showed up to chat artificial intelligence with the United States Senate. It was a closed-door meeting, so we don't really know what happened in there. But a couple of days later, we caught up with a former tech CEO who, in his day, knew something about talking to Washington. Here's Joe, Becky, and Andrew with Microsoft's former CEO, Steve Ballmer. Current tech CEOs weren't the only business leaders in Washington this week. Former Microsoft chief executive Steve Ballmer has also been meeting with congressional leaders. He's sharing the latest report from his USA Facts organization, which aims to compile government data accurately and make it easily digestible for everyday Americans. Join us right now on that, the AI debate in Washington, and so much more. Steve Ballmer is here, USA Facts founder and former CEO of Microsoft. Good morning to you, Steve. So as you made your way around Washington uh, with the with officials and other politicians uh, and your facts, your latest, uh, what, w- what was the thing you were trying to impress upon them? And what, w- what were the facts, if you will, uh, that you were pointing out this time? Yeah, we, we spent some time. We've just finished our annual report for, for uh, government in America, state, local, federal. And I think the number one thing we we're trying to get people to understand is It's good to use the history of what happened, as recorded by our government, as part of policymaking. And, at least in my opinion, every new bill that passes should have some key metrics that people are going to use and maintain and deliver in real time. You know, how are we going to assess the IRA or the infrastructure bill or uh, what happened with right. ARP or CHIPS, unless we're getting data back real time the way you would in a business. I just don't know how people make decisions. And we're really trying to push that point by highlighting that, you know, what we have for data, and in some cases, how old it is. Um, I know you like to stay apolitical with the data, but I'm curious, of, of the, the new pieces of information, was there any piece that you think that is vastly misunderstood either by the public or officials in Washington, and maybe even yourself prior to looking at it and going, you know what, I never really thought that that was the case. Yeah, I think I'm going to focus on one. I, I might say budget and immigration, but at least on budget, you know, we had this surge. We we're at about $5.1 trillion pre the pandemic. We jumped way up to over $7 trillion for two years. We came back down to $6.4 trillion. But if you actually look at all of the things that are now going away, uh, the stepped-up SNAP benefit, the child tax credit, uh, when we reported in uh, uh, 2022 fiscal year, we still had $500 billion for uh, college debt forgiveness. But there will be almost $800 billion that come back. Uh, Now, new things have been approved, but we're getting back to within six or seven hundred billion compared to the 5.1 billion pre-pandemic, which I go, whoo, 
I'm very glad. Uh, I am a partisan, if you will, that we not get into more and more debt. Well, you could write a check for that, Steve. Well, I mean. well, let me ask you about that, because we had Tim Scott on, on the broadcast <laughs> earlier this week, and we talked about, uh, in his view, uh, the need to lower taxes and, and his view that that would raise revenues, uh, arguably offsetting any of those uh, tax, tax cuts, if you will, or the lost revenue that would come from that. Is that the case? You've looked at these numbers over the years. You know, a lot of people say we need to raise taxes. Other people say we need to lower taxes. Uh, what, what do you think that the, the, the real outcome of, of all this has been? Okay, I won't give any particular forecast. That's not our game. We're not economists. We try to stick to what happened. But if you look at what has happened in the past, our tax revenues have, by and large, with the exception of a few big tax cuts, have been on a long, gradual, uh, upward slope in terms of total taxes collected. Who cares what tax rates are? It's all about taxes collected. So no matter who's in office, how people are dealing with things, there's generally been over time a slow upward trend. Now, what does in that say to revenues. do? In collected revenues. In collected. In co exactly. Collected revenues, not tax rates, but collected revenues. And, you know, is there elasticity? Would tax revenue really pop back? I don't know. The gradual trend is that things just keep going up and up and up. Uh, if I was a businessman and I looked at that line, I would say don't screw with it because anything we do uh, isn't likely to, to move that very much. But I'm a businessman. I'm not a politician. I'm not an economist. Uh, so just, just one man's opinion looking at the history. Steve, we, the best way to look at it, isn't it a, as a percentage of GDP, the, the tax, how much we spend, how much the government spends as a percentage of GDP, and it's historically been 18 to 19 percent. We're back to 23 percent, I think, or something right now. Do you think, yeah, that, do you think that on a nonpartisan way that the entire world could agree that there is a number that, that would hurt private sector growth, for example? Don't you think 30% is too much uh, as far as what the government's spending in terms of, of total GDP? And probably 18 or 19 is a, we should probably strive for that. That doesn't seem like it'd be that hard to, uh, to shoot for. I'd make three quick points. Mm -hmm. Number one, uh, are we going to talk about the expenses or are we going to talk about the deficit? I think people often latch on to expenses. I happen to be a deficit hound. Number two, like I said, there is a there is a basic built-in shrinkage in government spending coming with the expiration of many things that were done for COVID. It will help reduce the number. Number will three- give, Will it get us back to 18 to 19%, Steve? It'll get us back much closer. It won't get us all the way back down to 18 or 19%. But if you really wanted to get to 18 or 19%, we're gonna have to touch Social Security, Medicare, those are the two biggest spend categories out there. And if you look at it in the long run, as our population ages, our population only grew about 1.3 million people last year, uh, almost the slowest it's ever grown. And one million of that came from immigration. So depending on what immigration policy is and how that affects GDP, this government spend, because of Social Security and Medicare, will increase as a percentage of GDP right. unless we have more people in the country.
Steve, I want to switch gears on you uh, and talk about AI, which, of course, is the other big topic uh, in Washington this week. It's become, I think, the big topic everywhere in the world uh, for at least the last year, given uh, the success of OpenAI, its partnership with your former employer, Microsoft. Satya Nadella was also in Washington this week. Your um, sense of lawmakers' understanding of AI, the, the issues involved, and perhaps the dangers. Are you on the optimistic side? Are you on the, the negative side? And what are you telling them? Uh, I am excited that lawmakers want to learn. I am glad that there was a, you know, the conference that happened a couple days ago. We happened to see amongst both Democrats and Republicans, we saw Senator Schumer salute him for pulling things together. Do people really understand? I'm not even sure in some cases the full breadth of this, and I think the tech CEOs will admit this, where will all of this go? What I would say is, for example, super tough to regulate, super tough to regulate. So the question is, what kind of responsibility do you force onto the companies in terms of how they think things through? And, you know, we were talking, I was talking to one senator yesterday and he said, you know, we're just going to get more, you know, people are going to get more tribalized. They're going to just see things that are interesting, you know, on their feed. I pointed to him on the uh, on TV news channels. People pick what's interesting in them, too. It's just an inevitability. And we're going to have to try to deal with that as best we can. Now, that said, man, I'm a to I'm totally just jumping up and down out of my chair about what's possible with A.I., Every one of the cool scenarios we were talking about when I was CEO at Microsoft, those things can happen now. Get me ready for my, you know, my trip right. to Europe. Pull it all together. I, I'm, I'm, I'm pumped beyond belief. Steve, are you in the category, though, that open source or, clo or a closed system is the better path, given what appear to be the significant uh, challenges and risks that potentially the technology poses this is something that obviously Sam Altman has spoken uh, about and, and is sort of seeking, says at least that he's seeking regulation. Of course, he also has one of the largest and most successful uh, generative AI models at the moment. That's close. Yeah. I mean, this harkens back to a debate about open source operating systems versus closed source, Windows versus Linux. You know, the fact that you can see things gives greater, you know, see into the source code gives greater confidence. The fact that you protect the source code so people can't screw around with it provides a different kind of confidence. I'm not sure which will be best for generative AI yet. My suspicion is it'll be just like operating systems and you'll see popularity uh, on both sides. I mean, take cloud operating systems, Microsoft, Azure, AWS, those things, nobody publishes the source code, uh, and yet they're proceeding quite well. So I think it's a little bit of a sort of a no-op debate. Hey, Steve, just to put some context on all of this, you're still Microsoft's biggest shareholder, right? Uh, yeah. I think uh, other than index funds, I think that's right, just looking <laughs> online at holdings. Oh, God. Except for <laughs> That's a good one. Man. Yeah, a couple index funds might have a little more. That's why I was kidding about, Steve. I mean, you know, you could help with that whole deficit thing. I was joking. Uh -huh. I mean, I, I wish I were you, um, but I'm not. Yeah, see, I've, I've been very fortunate, but I just want to, it's 
this law of large number things, it turns out right. a thousand is uh, a thousand billions. It takes a lot to catch that up. I think you're a pretty happy guy. Are you? I guess it could be better in the NBA for you. Until we win an NBA championship with You're the Clippers, totally I won't be fully happy, dude. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I don't know. You've been happy for a long time, Steve. Right. Yeah. Hey, Steve, on the Microsoft front and on OpenAI, that partnership, how much do you think that that is going to take from, from Amazon and AWS? I mean, I think there's been a big question as, in terms of, you know, who's ahead, who's behind. Do you actually need to have the, the generative AI technology itself? Uh, to gain market share. How does that work in your mind? Yeah, of course, I, I have a bit of a bias as a Microsoft shareholder, but getting that first mover advantage in terms of being a place where people can write the best applications that use generative AI, if Microsoft, which I'm rooting for, can just put the pedal to the metal and press and press and press that advantage, I think it gives Microsoft a real edge with, with uh, Microsoft Azure. Mm -hmm. But we know Amazon's a, a good competitor. Microsoft knows, I know, is an independent uh, shareholder. Uh, they're, they're tough competitors, and you know, Microsoft's really going to have to work the advantage. Okay, different one for you. Uh, you also lived through the antitrust trials uh, when you were at Microsoft. Uh, the other thing that happened this week in Washington, the DOJ began its case against Google. Do you think that's a strong case? Do you have advice if you if you were if the Google folks called you up, what would you tell them? Um, do I think it's a strong case? Let me say it this way, and I'm not not the expert. I think it's a, a stronger case than the case the DOJ brought against us by putting browser and operating system together. Uh, Ten years ago, almost when I left Microsoft, I thought there was a case then uh, for this issue. And what would I tell Google? It's always better to settle these things quickly than slowly. Letting them drag out, not helpful, I think, for company culture, for distraction, and you won't necessarily do much better by fighting these things than settling them. Would you say the same thing to Amazon with the FTC and the charges that have been brought against it? Because when I first saw that they had offered no uh, remedies or anything to the lawyers at the FTC, that kind of surprised me given how open Microsoft was to saying, yes, we will do anything the government needs in order to get the Activision Blizzard deal done, that didn't seem to work really either. So you're, you're caught in a tough place when you're trying to figure out how to negotiate and get to the other side. Yeah, I think over time, you know, certainly from Microsoft's experience, the company seems to have really embraced this idea of collaboration with government, which I think is an important and right way to go. Uh, I think when you first have your encounter with these antitrust issues, it's to say, hey, we got here through our own industriousness and cleverness. We, th it's not okay. People shouldn't take this away from us. And yet, you know, that's not really the, the argument. In terms of the Activision Blizzard thing, it's still in process. It's still in process. And I'm cheering and hoping that that resolves in a good way because I think it'd be great for Microsoft to be able to really add a lot of value by owning Activision Blizzard. And then finally, I wanted to ask you, uh, Steve, about uh, well, X, formerly known as Twitter, because the other big news of the week, Walter Isaacson out with that big biography of Elon Musk. You were, uh, I think, or still are an active Twitter user what's, what, or X user these days. What's your prognosis? Yeah, I mean, in the old days, I was actually a large Twitter shareholder. I'd exited that position 
well before Musk uh, bought the company. I, I am a regular user of Twitter. It becomes the tool I use to screen inputs from the world. I, you know, will watch the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal online to see what are the most important things they tweet out. The Economist, people who I believe in and trust, or if I don't believe in and trust, at least I'm curious what they're saying, direct in their voice. Uh, now, there's also a bunch of <laughs> there's a bunch of random stuff that I see as well, unless I switch to the mode where I'm just seeing the people that I follow. I think it's a very helpful tool. I hope it remains a very helpful tool. And I have maybe a, you know, I have some faith that, you know, ultimately serving customers will be the driving force uh, behind X or, or any of the other products, either in the Elon Musk companies or other great companies around the world. Steve, always great to see you. Uh, glad that we got to touch so many different topics this morning and uh, hope to see you in person very, very soon. Thanks. Thanks, all three of you. Really appreciate it. All right. Good luck. Thanks. Next on Squawk Pod, where the rubber meets the road on the UAW's negotiations with Detroit's big three automakers. CNBC's Phil LeBeau on the worker demands. You move that down to 32 hours a week for the workers there, they will have to hire more people in order to continue production at the rate where they are right now. And the Wall Street Journal's Tim Higgins on why Elon Musk is really the winner in all of this. It is a race to make electric vehicles profitable, and Tesla is doing that, whereas the likes of Ford are not. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Stand by Joe, his mic, Q. Good morning and welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Joe Kernan, along with Becky Quick and Andrew Ross Sorkin. And uh, we've deteriorated. I mean, we maybe, maybe we have. Uh, depends on, uh, you know, we're not a monolith. Some of us have, maybe. Plus, it's raining today in New York. Raining yeah. and it's, it's just Monday. It's, it's just Monday terrible. and it's September. You know, it's... Coming up, I think uh, fall is coming like any day, isn't it? Three days, something yeah, like that. It, feels, it felt like first, fall yeah. over the weekend. Some Tesla news for you this morning. The Wall Street Journal reporting that Saudi Arabia is in talks with the EV maker about setting up a manufacturing facility there. The report says that the talks are at a very early stage and could fall apart. Saudi's public investment fund is the majority owner of rival EV maker Lucid. Musk has said that he will likely select a destination for a new factory by the end of the year. Reports say that he has spoken with India's government. And yesterday he met with Turkish President Erdogan in New York and was invited to build his next factory in Turkey. Erdogan also offered collaboration opportunities between SpaceX and Turkey's space program, and he invited Musk to Technofest. That's Turkey's aviation, aerospace, and technology festival that's held later this month. Musk told a Turkish media outlet that Turkey is among the most important candidates for his next factory. No, 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 no
The UAW not making much progress, rejecting the latest offer from Stellantis over the weekend. Phil Abou joins us right now from Toledo with the latest. Phil, good morning. Good morning, Becky. Still a big gap between the UAW and the big three when it comes to proposed pay hikes over the next four and a half years. As we've been talking about for a couple of weeks now, the UAW wants 40 percent. There's been some talk about maybe they'll come down into the mid 30 percent range. That's nowhere close to where the big three, what they're offering over the weekend. Stellantis raised its offer to 21 percent. Ford is at 21 percent. And then you've got GM at 20 percent. For Ford, the talks over the weekends were deemed reasonably productive. Not a huge endorsement, but that's what the UAW said about talks over the weekend. They are in the process of laying off 600 workers at the Michigan assembly plant because work cannot be done due to the strike going on there. So as a result, Ford says those 600 people, we're going to have to lay them off. Similar situation with General Motors. It expects to lay off 2,000 workers at its Fairfax, Kansas plant. That's where they build the Malibu, uh, the Cadillac CT4. The GM Missouri plant, where the UAW is striking, provides stampings that go to the Fairfax plant. Well, if there's no work in Missouri, there's not going to be much work for much longer at the Kansas plant for General Motors. So that is expected to happen this week. And finally, as you take a look at shares of Stellantis, one interesting issue here is the future of the company's Belvedere plant, which is just outside of Rockford. It's been idle since February. Originally, they talked about reopening it as part of the negotiation. Then they apparently took that back off the table. That raised the ire with the UAW. Guys, this is front and center. The UAW wants guarantees in terms of production and in terms of that plant in particular with Stellantis. So not a lot of progress here, and they're still pretty far apart. Hey, Phil, when you said that the Ford talks were deemed reasonably productive, I mean, they're yeah. at the same level yes. as some of the others at 21 percent. What are they willing to give besides pay increases that makes that maybe a different situation than the other talks? A lot of it has to do with dropping the wage tiers. Just to explain how the wage tiers work, they were put in effect back after the bankruptcies at GM and at uh, Chrysler coming out of 2008-2009. The, the auto company said, look, we cannot pay everybody who we hire the top rate. We've got to adjust it. So you come in at a lower rate, and then over a number of years, you move up to the top pay rate. Well, the UAW has said for many years, this is ridiculous. Somebody gets hired in at $18 or $19 an hour. It takes them eight, nine years to get up to the top pay rate. You shouldn't have to wait to get up to $28, $29, or $32 an hour, whatever the top pay rate may be. So they want those mightily condensed or eliminated altogether. The automakers believe that they, you know, they can make movement there, but that's one of the key areas. Last week, GM, I think, cut the number of years from eight to four in their offer. What, what is Ford right. willing to cut even more than that? You know, Becky, now you're getting into some, some, some details here that are, it's literally changing by negotiation day by negotiation day. So it's hard to say, well, Ford is going to do this and GM is going to do this in terms of wage tiers. Not all the wage tiers are exactly the same because not every contract is exactly the same. So there's some movement within there. Whether or not Ford is eliminating it completely or going down to one, I can't tell you, you know, because that is shifting day by day. Okay, Phil, stick around. We've got more to talk about with this. We want to bring in Tim Higgins, Wall Street Journal reporter and a CNBC contributor. In his latest column, Tim says that regardless of the strike's outcome, Elon Musk has already won. 
And Tim, thanks for being here. That may be a little self-descriptionary, easy to understand from all of this. Elon Musk is not dealing with unions in the same way. He doesn't have any unions. Yeah, he's not at the table, but he's definitely, his presence is kind of looming over. It it gets down to the the labor costs. Uh, The UAW workers at these Detroit automakers, uh, on average, all in is about 66 bucks an hour. That includes benefits. At Tesla, it's estimated at $45 an hour. So from day one, when they when they start talks and talking about spending more, Elon wins because Tesla is uh, is cheaper to make cars over there for those electric vehicles. And it's not just cheaper. It's also they're working to cut costs even more in the future. They've already talked about slashing uh, manufacturing costs by like 50 percent for the next generation vehicle. So, you know, the UAW would probably say it's a race to the bottom, but it is a race to make electric vehicles profitable. And Tesla is doing that, whereas the likes of Ford are not. The, the Biden administration is going to get involved, Tim, and I'm trying to figure that out. It, it's uh, as they always calls himself the most pro-union president uh, in, in the last 50 years. So how does that when they go in to try to mediate? How does that work? It, it, you know what it reminds me of, Tim, that I remember Corzine was was the uh, governor of New Jersey and he was negotiating with the, the public unions and he was giving a speech saying, we're going to get you a great deal. So that's the, the, the person that was trying to protect New Jersey taxpayers' dollars from, uh, you know, from being, you know, from, from giving too much, you know, too many concessions to the public unions. He was also the governor negotiating with it. So it, it reminds me of the same thing. What, what is the Biden administration, what line will they walk in this? Are they going to twist the arms of the, of the big three? Well, it's definitely a, a challenging position for the, the president uh, politically, a uh, a long distri- self-described car guy, uh, a labor uh, pro, uh, but the, the union uh, president is is frankly uh, frustrated with the Biden administration, feeling like uh, the Biden administration has been pushing uh, these automakers towards the electrification of the automobile, putting uh, money uh, to incentivize that, and yet uh, worried that the worker is going to lose out ultimately. You know, there's estimates of what maybe 40 percent less labor needed for electric vehicles. This isn't just a concern for Detroit. This is a concern for all automakers around the world. Uh, When you're talking about electric vehicles, it's just less complex motors and less complex uh, building that's needed. So uh, really, where do they sit in that new world order? Hey, Phil, let's talk just a little bit about... um, Tim. Tim. No, Phil's still here, too. Oh, Phil? Oh, you're going to talk to Phil? Yeah, Phil's still here, too. We got Tim. Tim and Phil are both here. Okay, that's confusing. Phil, let's go through again just the idea of what happens. uh, Gosh, now I lost my train of thought. Uh, (laughs) That's our fault. No, what what happens in a scenario, we spoke with Harry Wilson last week, and he was at the table back during the auto crisis back in 2008 and was negotiating with them to give up a lot of the things that the UAW is now trying to win back. The numbers we're talking about, whether it's 18 to 20 percent currently being offered by the big three or the 40 plus percent has been asked for by the UAW, they are over five years and they do reflect a catch up period. So I think the way to address that is to have something more significant that's being offered today, uh, have a significant ratification bonus that's effectively a catch up payment for inflation and focus on that, which is great for workers, but doesn't hamstring the companies going forward. And to, to say a hard no to the things that basically repeat the lessons of the past, things like the job bank. Things like 32-hour work week, things like retiree medical, that bankrupted the companies going into 2009 and which fundamentally don't help workers today. 
He thought the offers from the automakers were incendiary when they started out with the offer of 7 and 8 percent increases, that they should be getting something closer to 30 percent. But all the other things, um, pension benefits and some of the other issues that the UAW is trying to put back in, 32-hour work week, he thought that was a no-go. Is that, is that sort of frame of mind something that's there. I, I asked if they called Harry to try and get him back to the table because what he was talking about kind of made sense from from the longer term perspective of what was lost, what what they should be getting and what would be so bad that it would put the automakers out of business. Well, the 32 hour work week is one of those that the automakers are going to fight tooth and nail um, because their feeling is, look, OK, you want to talk about pay increase? Let's say you're going to increase the pay. And I'm just throwing out a random here. They ultimately settle at 25 percent. You want to cut the work week down by 20%, that's another 20% raise on top of that 25%. And in addition to that, you take a plant like the Kentucky truck plant for Ford. It's not going 24-7, but it's pretty darn close over the course of a week. You move that down to 32 hours a week for the workers there, they will have to hire more people in order to continue production at the rate where they are right now. And that's the most profitable plant within the Ford system. So if you are Ford, you don't want to hire more people. You're in the process of trying to become leaner and more efficient. Th that's the rub there when you talk about the 32-hour work week. Uh, I don't know. Either Tim or Phil can answer this. And, and I'm, I'm curious if it's, a, if it's a function of the stock. This actually goes back to Tesla. We're talking about Tesla being the winner in all of this. Uh, for, a, for quite some time, there was a period of time at least, where it looked like Tesla um, employees and those working on the factory floor were actually making more on an hourly basis than the uh, unionized workers at GM and other places. This, this clearly appeared to be true uh, two years ago and at least almost one year ago, but may not be true today and has become a talking point. Have you heard this? Um, and, and I assume this is a function of the stock price of Tesla not being what it was a year and a half, two years ago? You know, it's a, it's a, you know this is an element of the kind of the upside where uh, traditionally, you know, the UAW wants to, in essence, kind of guarantee what they're going to be getting. They have been persuaded uh, for to go with contracts that uh, have bonuses that are tied to the profitability of the car company. Uh, but in the past, we've seen reluctance to go with kind of stock options that are uh, perhaps more spe uh, spectacle or, uh, speculative in nature. Uh, they want to be tied to the dollars and cents of the company, whereas a, a Tesla is more like a startup. And that's how uh, workers at the company from white collars to the assembly line have uh, largely been compensated. And that's kind of uh, the Silicon Valley mindset. Go on, Phil. I mean, if, if you're making all your money with the big gas guzzlers, that, that's going away to, to make the EVs, which you're it not selling. It is going away eventually, Joe. It is going away eventually. The question is when, Joe. Right now, the average transaction price for each of the big three, somewhere around 50, 51,000. GM is at the highest end there, over $51,000 per vehicle. And the thing to focus on here is North America. You know, I hear people say all the time, well, how much are they making in China? Or how much is Ford making in Latin America? Or with their pro division in Europe? That's not the concern of the UAW. The concern of the UAW is, what are you doing here in the country where we are building vehicles? And profitability has never been stronger in North America. Record profits in North America. That's why the UAW feels that it has leverage right now. All right, Phil, Tim, want to thank you both. I, I get the feeling that we're going to be talking to you a lot in the days and weeks to come.
And that's Squawk Pod for today, this Monday in September. Thanks for starting your week with us. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern. This podcast brings you the very best of our TV show in a 30-minute audio-only format that you can listen to anytime. So click that follow button, maybe on Apple Podcasts, and give us a five-star rating. And hey, tell a friend to listen to. We'll meet you right back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com.